Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome this morning, this beautiful Thursday morning. Sun's up, I'm up, and Ellis Carr is up. Good morning, Ellis. Good morning, Mr. Oaks. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. You are the CEO and president of Capital Impact. That's correct. How did you get that job? That's a powerful job. That's an important <laughs> job. <laughs> it is. A lot of luck. And, and one of my mentors told me a long time ago, luck is the combination of preparation and opportunity. So I think it's, um, I've been preparing a lot and the opportunity happened. It's rather serendipitous, but really blessed to be in the role and really happy about talking to you today about it and, um, you know, pushing the, the needle forward and kind of pushing forward my predecessor, Terry Simonette's legacy that he started. Yes, we've had Terry Simonette on the, on the program and, he was so low-keyed, I had no idea of everything that uh, that you guys do, Capital Impact. And matter of fact, I was surprised to see that he retired. Mm-hmm. So let's talk first about your background. What are some of the things you did to prepare? Sure. So I think um, that be me being born who I was propelled to actually put me in the seat. I think first and foremost, I'm from the Washington, D.C. area. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, and... Uh, both my parents are retired D.C. public school teachers. They both taught for over 20-plus years in D.C., which is very different than the D.C. today. Um, but I think from them in particular, I learned the concept of giving back and the concept of community. And it was from both of my parents, particularly both of them, who talked about and expected more of their students and made sure that they understood that you know there was life beyond high school. And that their zip code didn't determine, ultimately determine their future. They determined it. So I, I would say that, that that was first and foremost kind of the kind of North Star that was put in my life many, what, many years ago. What did they teach? So uh, my father, uh, it's interesting, and you'll probably see this aspect of my personality a bit. My father taught driver's education. And so he's a very jovial type of person, mm-hmm. has a, a great sense of humor but also a serious side. And at the time, he was a uh, deacon in the church and went on to be uh, a pastor. Um, so when he got, got you in the car and, and you were driving, he would talk to you about life. <laughs> okay. so he had, he'd get you laughing and then hit you with the serious. And then my mother uh, was similar but different, much more business-minded, and she was a math teacher, so kind of quantitative in nature. And I think that's where I get a lot of my quantitative background as well, growing up in the the accounting and finance space. But professionally, I've kind of been on a journey in the finance and accounting space, spending a little less than 20 years in for-profit financial services, both both here domestically and abroad. First starting out was an organization called Alex Brown, which is an old investment house, acquired by Deutsche Bank, I think, in my my first 
first year that I started there and working in kind of fixed income fund management there and then had the, the pleasure and the opportunity to be a part of a, their first management leadership exchange program. And I spent a year in Dublin, Ireland, which is, wow, um, I learned a lot there, specifically around how to manage people who may not be incentivized or motivated by the things that you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly when, you're, when you are the newcomer, you are the foreigner in, in this case. So I had a lot to learn, and I learned more than anything to just take a step back and listen and observe. Listen. All uh, right. Listen. Absolutely. A- I have to do that. So what was your education to get you to your first job and then end up in Dublin, Ireland? So it was um, it was in accounting. Uh, I got a, a, a bachelor's from Towson University uh, in, in Baltimore. And to be honest with you, accounting wasn't my first love. <laughs> it was uh, actually a little bit too rules-driven for me, and I, I like to color outside the lines a bit uh, and think about things in, in different ways because I knew that there was more than one way to solve something. Mm-hmm. And I took my first finance class and fell in love. Um, but my parents said, you got four years to get out of school. <laughs> Otherwise, it's on you. So I got my degree in accounting, but quickly got internships in finance. And that's kind of where I stayed. Just really, really kind of on that finance and accounting one. Do you have an MBA? Uh, no, I actually have a master's in real estate with a, with a focus in finance from Georgetown. And I got that over 10 years after I graduated from undergrad because I wanted to really figure out exactly what I wanted to do and, and specialize a bit. So I spent some time after I left Deutsche Bank uh, and went over and worked at Freddie Mac, which was a, a great experience for me. I worked over 10 years there, working in a variety of capacities, including capital markets, corporate finance, strategy, and lastly, in kind of the single family uh, business area. So there, I think I, I really had an opportunity both to embrace kind of my technical craft, which is, you know, the finance accounting strategy area. I'm always looking, and I found myself always looking to, to understand the bigger picture and things, mm-hmm. um, which kind of led me through the roles that I took at, at, at Freddie. But then also, I had great mentors. You talked about, well, what helped to prepare me. I had mentors and I had sponsors at Freddie. And interestingly enough, as I look back on it, Two of the mentors that I had there, one ran kind of community relations and community development, and the other one ran the Freddie Mac Foundation. So I'd find myself oftentimes in their offices in our normal monthly or quarterly checkups and check-ins and um, talk about the work that they were doing. And I envied the work that they did because it really combined um, kind of the passion uh, that I have for for giving back, uh, the passion that my, my parents gave me, uh, instilled in me in terms of the community and my technical craft, which was finance and accounting. And so those are kind of some of the, I'd say, the immediate reflections on how and what prepared me uh, for this role. So when did you leave Freddie Mac? So I left Freddie Mac in 2012. I've been uh, at Capital Tax just over five years. Okay. So you were a part of the Great Recession, did you I cause was, it? I was. I, the, I got there um, actually in 2002, uh, and it was a time where uh, there, because I was working in the investments and capital markets area, they retained portfolio, which is where they buy mortgage-backed securities and, in certain cases, single-family whole loans. 
and hold them on their portfolio. And their portfolio was, was increasing dramatically by the hundreds, millions. <laughs> mm-hmm. It seemed like every month. And um, that came to a screeching halt over time as the market changed. And as uh, regulators took over the organization, uh, kind of mid, middle to latter part of my term at, at Freddie Mac. So, yeah, I saw a lot <laughs> there um, and learned and, and, and figured out how to navigate in, in that type of environment. But, again, it was a great opportunity. It was a great experience to be able to every two or so years to, to get tapped to, to take on a new challenge in the organization and to, to learn a lot. So it really kind of taught me how to kind of parachute into a place, kind of assess the situation again, going back to that call out before to listening mm-hmm. and observing uh, and then uh, reacting and responding, uh, which those really four things are really key to community development and the work that we do here at Capital Impact. So can you go over those four things one more time? So I'm not as young as I used to be, but I'll try to recall them and say them as eloquently as I did. I said, uh, listen, observe, respond, and react. Hmm. Okay, so listen, observe, respond, and react. And you had a great chance to do that in 07, 08, and 09 uh, with the Great Recession and and, and Freddie had a huge portfolio of single-family homes and That's figured correct. out what to do. All right. And then they put on top of you some regulators that came in and told you what to do. Correct. All right. Correct. And looking That's figuring out how to work with them. So that was That's probably right. a great experience to help you to run an organization like Capital Impact. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, 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 I will be remiss if I didn't mention my time prior to, to taking this role as the president and CEO, because what I think Capital Impact uh, taught me and allowed me to do in particular, which I credit to, to Terry and his leadership and the rest of the, the great team that we have here, is just to be able to bring your whole self to work. Ellis, we've, uh, got, to, we've got to take a break now, our first break, cool. and we're going to come back and talk about your whole self, bring your whole self to work. Sure. Uh, we'll pick right back up. If anybody has a question or a comment, please call 1-800-450-7876. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM WOS at 95.9 FM. Information is power. You know, National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, and NCB's mission is to, is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And they are a great partner. The whole idea here is to give the listeners information about cooperatives, so that if you use this information, you would have power to solve community problems. And our guest today is Mr. Ellis Carr, who's the president and CEO of Capital Impact. And before we took the break, uh, Ellis, you were saying uh, Capital Impact allows you to bring your whole self to work. What do you mean by that? I mean just that, bringing your thoughts, energy, and ideas to work and not have to restrain them. I think that 
no point in my in my career had I been fully encouraged to do that. And and I think being able to bring my full self to work to talk about myself, my background in a in a very open way in my experience really allow people to get to know me better and me to get to know my colleagues better. And then, you know, bringing that experience as we work on, uh, work with folks in underserved communities across the country, growing up as an African-American male has given me a very unique perspective to bring to this work and not have to hide that or uh, to be afraid to share my own experiences or those of my family really is something that's unique and I think that's something that is extremely special. You know, you said it's just that, your whole self to work. And I'm like you, my experience, I'm a 70-year-old African-American male and have some great experiences, but it's awful hard to find a community where you can share your history and your beliefs and your fears, whatever else is there. And be able to take that data and translate it into some kind of a project where you can respond to something in the community and react to it to make the community better. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So I I I, I normally wait to the end of the program to ask do you like your work. <laughs> but I, Love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. I, you know, I, I, just to respond to something that you just said, you said um, being able to articulate your fears. And oftentimes when I think about the work that we do here and and the systems change that we are striving for, I think a lot about fear. And that fear, in my mind, in a lot of cases, translates into bias. And that bias is, in fact, in some cases, the reason why some barriers exist. And so when we think about kind of our mission here, right, is to help people in communities break those barriers to success. And, and so as I think about kind of being able to articulate those fears in a setting where it's embraced, then you begin to understand, right? Then you go back to those things that I mentioned. You listen, you observe, you react, you respond. And all of that kind of conversation and that inertia really begins to, to be the formation of the development of something special that can help transform community. Wow. And so the last part I'd say to that, too, is, you know, where it is helpful to me and do I, do I like my job? I love my job. It doesn't feel like work, quite frankly. And sometimes my wife has to tell me to turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's it's the perfect hybrid that's, you know, in combination of kind of my passion and purpose. I really feel like I'm in this role for a reason, and it's not to just sit still. It's actually to do something with the platform that we have. And so that's what we're going to do. And I think that the 80-some-odd people who stand with me feel the same way. And so I've never, again, worked with a, a, a bunch of more committed and smart people in my career and um, all marching in, in the same direction at the at the beat of the same beat of the drum. So it's, it's been a great place and one that I truly appreciate every day that I'm able to come in to work. You sound like Cornelius Blanding. I don't know if you know Cornelius. I do know Cornelius. Uh, He's the president and CEO of the Federation of Southern Co-ops. And he said that, uh, similarly, his wife and children have to tell him to turn it off. Um, That's right. But but to that point, though, I I can say my my nine-year-old can say what Capital Impact does and how they do it. Um, And I think 
if I were working somewhere else, he may not be able to as clearly articulate that. And he can, because I think he can not only say it, but he can understand it and he can actually see it. Okay, so I should have him on the program and not you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Much smarter than I am. <laughs> so let's go in. I have him on the athletic side, but he, he definitely has me on the academic side. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ellis, let's go back and talk about how Capital Impact formed for those people out there that did not hear Terry Simonette uh, when he was on the program. So can you give us a little history of, of Capital Impact? I'd love to, love to, and maybe, maybe I'll just start with today and then work backwards because we've had a you know a thirty plus year road, and you know probably I will not be as eloquent as Terry probably was because he was there from the start over thirty years of the organization. But you know, uh, first and foremost, Capital Impact is a is a national nonprofit community development financial institution uh, with CDFI and headquartered here in Arlington, Virginia, with offices in Oakland, California in Detroit, Michigan. And just for those folks who may not be familiar with the, the terms CDFI or community development financial institutions, the CDFIs are private mission-driven financial institutions whose primary purpose is to unlock or accelerate economic opportunity in underserved neighborhoods. And we are one of the thousand plus CDFIs across the country and are one of the larger ones, um, larger uh, community development loan funds in the country, and we serve a, a vital role across the country. Um, as I mentioned, our, our mission really centers around helping people and community break barriers to success, and we achieve that. We achieve our mission by lending to, investing in, and, and developing programs for underserved communities across the country. We primarily focus on four main sectors: education, healthcare, food, and housing. A little slower, please. Education, healthcare, food, and housing. Okay. And uh, I'll talk a second in a second about our work in cooperatives that actually runs across all of those sectors. And then also we have a, a cross-cutting initiative in aging, focusing on the 50-plus population. So with kind of that context and maybe going back, so we were really created at a with congressionally chartered an act of Congress in 1978. In fact, that was the same act of Congress where the National Cooperative Bank was also formed. Yes. Um, we got our start in 1984. I think at the time it was called the Consumer Cooperative Development Corporation, and which was a D.C.-based nonprofit. And our primary kind of focus uh, was centered around low-income communities as well, but also to promote, use, and develop the cooperative form of ownership as a means of creating opportunity and economic participation at a time where, in our history, where folks in lower-income areas and, and communities were disproportionately adversely affected by that, uh, that time with high interest rates and, and inflation. So we actually served as an affiliate of National Cooperative Bank from our inception to 2010. And I would say, uh, coming from a for-profit uh, financial institution that we are, and I am extremely fortunate, extremely fortunate to be able to leverage the skill you know, then and now, right, the, the knowledge, skills, and resources that uh, NCB was able to provide uh, to us over time. Um, it's actually one of the reasons why we can stand strong today uh, and, and play the role that we play in community. Um, so I, I think maybe the last thing I'll just say, and, and feel free to, to ask questions, I mean, I think since our inception, we have been able to, to, to do quite a bit. 
We've invested over $2 billion in underserved communities. Um, and as much as I'm a finance type of person, you know, the human side of me also is, is ever present. And so that translates into 33,000 jobs uh, impacting about 5 million people across the country. So it's something that we're super proud about and, and hope to continue to do much more in the future. Well, sir, with you at the helm, I don't think it should be hope. You got preparation and opportunity on your side. You got luck. That's right. Father of the deacon, so I know you got God on your side. That's right. (laughs) So, and you got a nine-year-old telling you what to do. So you good. (laughs) You got going on. So we're going to take our second break here in a minute. And we want to come back. Uh, when Terry was on, he talked a lot about the work that you all did in Detroit. And I see you have an office in Detroit, another one in Oakland. Mm-hmm. So we want to talk about the work that you have done specifically in those four areas, education, health, food, and housing, and also working on folks like me, the baby boomers over 50 years old. And uh, I'm, exci- I'm, I'm wanting to know what you're doing now. So sure. we're, we're going to take our second break, and we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. The National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. And the National Cooperative Bank and Capital Impact was formed in 1982. And they've been doing a lot of great work in low-income communities, particularly teaching and forming cooperatives. Mr. Ellis Carr is on the line with us this morning telling us about his life history and his work with Capital Impact. Ellis, a lady by the name of McDonald was on the program. She's with, um, I think it's Cabot Creamery. Mm-hmm which is a marketing cooperative, a lot of farmers, I don't know, 9,000 farmers, some huge number of farmers form this co-op, and they send their milk and Cabot Creamery, Cabot Cheese is what I know them of. They form it. She says that the folks at NCB are angels with the work that that you do, and uh, Capital Impact was an affiliate and still carry out the mission of working with low-income communities. So... During the break, I, I wrote down $2 million, and I had to try to figure out how many zeros there was. And by the fact, my major was math, and I taught math for six years. So there's three, six, nine zeros in $2 billion. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money, man, that you all have loaned out, creating 33,000 jobs, affecting 5 million people. 5 million, that's with six zeros. That's right. I don't know if there's many organizations that have done that kind of work, working with people. That's awesome by itself. That's phenomenal. Yeah, so again, it's, 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 a, it's a blessing, and I, I feel like, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the other CDFIs, the other 1,000-plus CDFIs across the country who are doing work just like we are, and we're working together in trying to, to lift our communities up and work with them. And I, I, I would just say that, you know, it really is a blessing to, to be in the space, but at the same time, and I'm sure you've heard this before, right? So much as 
as much as given, as much as required. Yep. And so we feel like we need to continue to advance the ball down the field. And, you know, we're excited to embark upon some new things that we're working on to, that helps us to do that. Okay. So Terry talked about the work that you all did in Detroit, which is phenomenal because it's the major part of the Rust Belt with all of the, not all of, but a majority of the uh, car manufacturing jobs going overseas. Can you give us a sense of that for those people that may not have heard Terry's talk about it? Sure. Um, and so maybe what I'll do, if it's okay with you, is just maybe ground us, and this is the teacher, my parents' teachers. And they, <laughs> uh, in tw- we are uh, in our second year of our five-year strategic plan. Mm-hmm. So as I was coming in as CFCO, um, Terry was gracious enough to allow me to, to get more in the forefront in terms of charting out kind of our, our five-year strategy and, and some of the uh, things the, that, that, I, that efforts that we have in place today are a result of that. So I'll just talk quickly about kind of what that context is and then maybe spend a few minutes just talking about you know, how our history is informing our future and how we are specifically being a bridge between and within the cooperative and community development space, um, because I think it's a really important thing to highlight, one, and uh, which is the power of a cooperative business model in really helping to, to um, highlight or accentuate kind of the, the positives in, in communities across the country that have been neglected. Okay. So um, if that's okay, I'll just maybe just start really quickly with kind of what we affectionately call uh, Capital Impact 2020, which is our five-year strategic plan. And we have four kind of primary pillars that kind of guide our work going forward. And, and the first one is addressing systemic poverty, which is really around affecting systems at scale. So as we talk about healthcare, education, food and housing, those are really the essential safety nets that folks need to, to thrive. The second one, which I'm really excited about, too, is around creating equity. And this is where, you know, cooperatives really kind of are essential to this, for us to meet this. And that's really giving communities the, the needed, the resources needed to be successful. And it's, again, going back to the listen, observe, react, respond in the sense of every community is not the same. And so they're not going to need the same exact thing. So you can't go in and feel and be prescriptive about, well, here's what I'm going to offer you mm-hmm. without under, not understanding what is actually needed. And it also is to be successful in creating equity, you just have to understand that. It's also uh, about kind of supporting the equitable access to, to services in place, regardless of who you are, regardless of your race, your gender, your income, et cetera. And I can talk a bit about some of these things as well. Uh, the third is around uh, building healthy communities, and that's really kind of fostering uh, the interconnectedness between things like health and housing, education and healthcare. Because it's it's important to have, you know, one right. You you got to have a great place, a good place, a decent place to live, but you also need to have somewhere to to, to go shop and and get your groceries, and also a place to get education. These are all the things that are needed for folks to, to thrive. And then lastly, and this is kind of gets to, to the point around uh, Detroit, is promoting inclusive growth. I'm sure Terry talked a lot about us being in Detroit since the early 2000s. Over that time, we, we have invested well over $100 million, particularly at a time where you were not seeing investment go into the city. 
and we were fortunate enough to be able to partner with some great community organizations, city, others to, to really help create kind of an inclusive growth mindset. Because um, at the time, Detroit, you know, still is population has, has shrunk uh, and you have pockets of isolated poverty over a huge geographic area. And so to help densify an area and create kind of economic opportunity, create an economic hub, we began to build a diverse mixed income community that really helped to promote economic mobility and really kind of deconstruct that concentrated poverty that we saw. And there's a number of things that we did to do that, and I can talk about those as well. But maybe kind of going through some of the things that, that I'm excited about and kind of support of kind of our strategic goals, our capital impact 2020. Maybe I'll talk about maybe two examples and then um, feel free to, to ask questions about them mm-hmm. or even throughout this. And I think, again, it really gets back to being that bridge between cooperative and community development. And as we've kind of gone through this work, we have um, really spent the last kind of 18 months, really the time that I've been in this role, working with the board and staff around how do we kind of elevate the work that we're doing in cooperatives and really reframe the conversation around income and inequality, social justice, et cetera, and use the co-op and community development models that exist, the tools that we have in our toolbox to really be able to affect change. And really where we came out was, you know, we wanted to increase access to quality services, both food, housing, and healthcare in a cooperative space. We wanted to increase the number of cooperative businesses um, because as we know, they build social and economic and financial wealth. We wanted to increase the number of minority-owned businesses because as you know, the population in this country is dramatically changing. And over the next 30 plus years, the majority of the population will be people of color. And so understanding that, we need to begin to educate those populations on the power of the cooperative model. And lastly, we want to increase the number of quality jobs. So using our relationships that we had in the community development space, we were able to raise capital grant funds for us to kind of see two efforts right now. The first is in home health care. And as you know, probably know, home health care is a low-wage industry. Uh, workers are overwhelmingly female, and 50% of the, of the population in the home health care space are people of color, and their average income is about $13,000. Yes, I said $13,000. <laughs> so we were one of the initial funders. Of, wait, wait, I'm of the sorry, co-op. I'm sorry. $13,000 is $6.50 an hour? Mm-hmm. The I, I didn't say it was six dollars and fifty cents an hour. I just said fifty cent, fifty percent of people who work in the home health care space uh, are people of color, and that they have an average income of about thirteen thousand dollars. No, I just divided thirteen by two thousand, thirteen thousand by two thousand. Oh, okay. If it's two thousand hours in a year, if it's full time, then there it comes go. to six dollars and fifty cents an hour. Yep. Just that little, little math. Okay. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's a challenge. I, I guess I could just I'll I'll say that and leave it there. <laughs> well, let me let me uh, let me put something here real quickly. The, there's yeah. a book called um, Cities Building Wealth that the Democracy Collaborative created, uh, mm-hmm. pamphlet-like book, and they talked about Christina, who's Mexican American in New York, and she was making seven dollars an hour before they formed a co-op, and after they formed a co-op, she went to twenty dollars an hour. Yep. Now that doesn't, ha- and that's a worker cooperative. That doesn't happen all of the time, 
But in, right. And so what she did, according to this article, was uh, she spent she worked less hours and spent more time with her children. That's right. So that gave her that opportunity. So, so co-ops have that ability to, for people to cr- really create wealth. And you've already mentioned that several times. Absolutely. And somebody, well, I mean, I as heard, you know, I mean, we, we were uh, one of the uh, initial investors in Cooperative Home Care Associates, which is the largest worker co-op in the country. It's in New York. Um, yep. Yeah, exactly. In New York. Uh, and they've, they've employed over 2000 low income Latino women in the South Bronx alone. And so kind of, Having that history, uh, we've participated um, uh, with the Corporate Development Foundation in a home co- home care working group for about four years. And in January, we we um, we leveraged our relationship with the AARP Foundation, um, which we have done work with around aging. And we received a grant um, to to really look into this, look into the the way that we could design a sustainable business model for home health care workers and to work a co-op, exactly to your point. And that will be the foundation to kind of scale a model nationally. Uh, and we partner with CDF, or Cooperative Development Foundation, to do this important work. So when I talked about kind of leveraging our relationships and our, um, our efforts in community development, in this case with the AARP Foundation, this was the first time that they had actually even thought about a cooperative as a as a potential solution to a challenge that they saw within their own population. So it's extremely important that we continue to, to do this work. And now you have, you have the ability where you're educating folks who may not already know about the cooperative business model and the power that it possesses to do some of these great work that we have. Phenomenal power, phenomenal power. And that's why I I learned about co-ops managing housing co-ops and mm-hmm. uh, really fell in love with them. I did not learn about it in my MBA program at Stanford. That's nowhere in my formal education that I hear anything about cooperatives. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of, I've had people in the program that grew up in co-ops, either their parents were in credit unions or they were on a farm, and so they know about co-ops really, really early on. Uh, so I've, I've right. just fallen in love with this cooperative model as a tool for black folks to make money and create wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's black, Latinos, Native Americans. It could be anybody. It could be anybody, right. but a way of them getting uh, financial freedom, financial stability, and social uh, wealth. So you, you've mentioned yeah. all of those. But we're going to take our Absolutely. final break. Yeah. <laughs> and I really okay. <laughs> want to come back and delve more into the things that you all are doing there and uh, tell people uh, how they can uh, reach out with you if they've got an idea. Absolutely. But we'll be we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.S. at 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Mr. Ellis Carr on the line with us this morning talking about the great things that Capital Impact is doing and and how he got prepared to lead this organization. Uh, Ellis, before 
we took the break. You had talked about Capital Impact 2020, and I want to go back to that. As some of the things you're doing to alleviate systemic poverty, creating equity, building health, and promoting inclusive growth. I really like the idea that in, since, 20, since 2000, you put over $100 million in Detroit? That's correct. Okay. So let's start off with eliminated systemic poverty. What are some of the kinds of projects you're working on to, to do that? Absolutely. So I, I think it's uh, one that I'll give you that touches on something that you said earlier about seniors and aging, and just maybe started by giving you a quick stat, which is that there are currently 75 million baby boomers today. Um, and each day and for the next 20 years, um, there are 10,000 Americans per day reach the age of 65. Huge, huge uh, population, fastest growing population in, in the country. And um, when you overlay that and think about that there are millions of small businesses owned by baby boomers um, and, and have, you know, obviously they have workers, it creates a huge opportunity to, to grow the worker um, cooperative um, population in this country. And so as we think about, um, as I mentioned to you, maybe just going back and giving a few more stats, which is when you look at kind of income inequality and income disparity in this country, and then you stratify that by race, you see that people of color typically are at the bottom. And in, in particular, there's a recent study done by Prosperity Now um, that was recently published that talked about it talks about um, kind of the net worth of classes of, of Americans in this country. And African-Americans net worth is predicted to be zero by 2050. And uh, Latino Americans uh, net worth is projected to be zero in 2070. So when you think about um, aging baby boomers, the ability to move um, assets and wealth from those businesses and convert them into cooperatives, um, that represents a huge opportunity to, to, to change the scale in terms of creating equity and, and wealth and addressing poverty writ large. Ellis, um, I want to I break that down a minute. Uh, you said that this report showed that African-Americans' net worth will be zero by 2050. So that right. says that if you look at all the assets they have, their cash, their cars, their uh, home, uh, mm -hmm. and you subtract from that the liabilities, what they owe, their credit cards, their mortgage, and whatever, it comes out to be zero. Zero. Jesus. Zero. And in fact, over the last, I think, 15 or 20 years, um, their, their collective uh, net worth has gone down over 50%. Well, particularly um, since 07, 08, I mean, with that big... Yeah, exactly, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, again, using kind of um, our relationships on the community development side and highlighting this issue of income inequality and poverty, we were able to raise capital from city community development and doing conducting market research to design a pilot program on financing worker cooperative conversions. So basically taking those businesses from baby boomers and converting those into um, worker cooperatives where the workers actually have an equity stake and own the, the organization. And so we've actually partnered up with the ICA group uh, and Democracy at Work Institute 
Um, ICA Group will be doing some of the business development, feasibility, and, and, and sector analysis. And uh, Democracy at Work, who I think was, has been on the show as well, will be doing uh, some of the, the te- evaluating the, the, the technical assistance needs. And so the goal is for us to, to begin to develop uh, a program that can, can be financeable um, and then begin to find players in both the cooperative and community development space to help um, to make this happen. So going back to your initial point, um, these kind of these two examples that I gave you really cut across all the things that we're doing, right? It, it addresses systemic poverty by creating equity because it will allow uh, us to use a cooperative model as a way to uplift the folks in those areas. If they have the capital to spend, then they'll be able to afford the the, the necessities in life, right? Education, food, healthcare, housing, and really supporting uh, kind of inclusive growth as well. Well, I'm I'm still here shocked from this zero net worth by 2050 for African Americans and zero net worth by 27 for our Latin brothers and sisters. That that's that's shocking, and what's causing yeah. it to go down because it's been up. So I would like to get that study. But yeah. I went to um, Cincinnati two years ago to the Cincinnati Cooperative. We're having another um, conference this December. I think it's first and second or third and fourth. I can't remember the dates right now, which I have it on my calendar to go. But I met uh, some people out of Chicago that were converting manufacturing companies uh, mm-hmm. from these baby boomers to the employees. And that's called a worker cooperative when the workers own and control the business. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed at the stats of how many manufacturing companies there are first, because right. I don't think of making candy as a manufacturing, but it is, or right. uh, creating cards or paper. And how many of these baby boomers own these manufacturing companies and the employees are a great, it's really, really, really win, win, win because the, the owners have somebody to buy their company and they already know the company. So it's a much better chance of success. And then the employees own it. And then therefore they not only make their salary or their hourly amount, but then if there's profits, they decide how their profit is divided up uh, that dividend or, or how much they keep for growth or how much they give to community projects. So it's a, it's a, and it's also great for the community because that money stays in the community. Absolutely. The little economics I had, that's the multiplier effect. It stays there five to eight times as opposed to one time and leaves the community right away. So, yeah, it's a it's a win, 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 win. Absolutely. And, and just to add to that, right, you know, we, we are in uh, ICA Group has come back with some initial research from kind of them scanning the market. And, and one of the alarming takeaways that we had was that there are more businesses closing than being sold. And the majority of those businesses that are that are closing are actually financially healthy. So when you think about the disruption that a business closing has on folks, if they're if we don't do something about it, right, we're we're exacerbating the issue of poverty already. And so it it's something that is extremely important. And I think it's um and which is why we're focused on it. And I think that it's it's something that not only could to your point, it has a win-win-win effect and a multiplier effect in the community. But if you don't do anything, it actually has it, it has a detri- it is a detriment uh, to the people who work for those organizations. 
Well, you know the difference between a recession and a depression? Mm-hmm. I don't remember this whole joke, but a recession is when your neighbor loses their job. A depression is when you lose your job. <laughs> so, <laughs> so right. when we talk about devastating, it's devastating particularly to that family that lost their income uh, because right. the, the factory closed or the business closed. And if it's profitable, I would imagine that the owner doesn't know about this option or they would take it because they can make money, too, by taking the option and selling it to the employees. Even if that's it's right. $400, that's $100 more dollars than they would have had. That's uh, right. That's right. Or on time. Right. They could sell it to them on time and still be better off. Okay. That's right. Uh, now, what is ICA? I think of International Cooperative Alliance when you say ICA. So what does that stand for here? I need to. Uh, I thought you had that. said what it was. Okay. I thought I had no, missed I it. Didn't. Okay. Um, so they're a group that focuses on cooperatives and have done so for some time. Okay. Talk about equity because it's uh, two minutes. Oh, man. I, I, I need another hour. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted so, to talk about so what you could do in Flint, Michigan, what you do with advocacy. Um, sure. There's sure. so much to so, talk so, about. So, so let me uh, try to give you one more example, and I think the biggest thing I want uh, you and your listeners to take away is we are much more than just your, a, a financing company, a financial intermediary. As you can see, we, we try to be extremely thoughtful about the, the challenges and the issues in underserved communities and not only do, you know invest and lend, but we, we also do programs, and maybe that's where I'll, I'll um, focus on this last example, which kind of gets to your equity and healthy communities, and goes back to some of the work that we've done in Detroit. And so uh, I've mentioned we've invested over $100 million in Detroit. We have done a, a mixture of investments in, in housing and other community development, community facilities like healthcare facilities, educational facilities, and retail grocery stores, but also uh, financing you know, food distribution and production. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we, we recognize that there still was a dearth of diversity in the developer space, and we created the Equitable Development Initiative that really is a citywide project that's focusing on increasing density and preserving mixed income, and we're doing that by Ellis, working with 15 to 20. Ellis, um, we just got to get you back on. We just have to get you back on <laughs> okay. soon, because we've got to go. The time is up. All right. So thank you so thank much. You, a lot of information. I really appreciate it. And everybody out there, thank you for joining in, and we'll see you next Thursday. Have a great cooperative week. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9.